Hi, I'm Malcolm Maiden, and welcome to the Yarra Exchange, a podcast covering what's happening in the markets and the world of business generally, brought to you by independent Australian fund manager, Yarra Capital Management. Today, I'm sitting down with Dion Hershen, Yarra's managing director and head of Australian equities, though the first part of that title will soon change. We'll cover off on that shortly. Dion is one of Yarra's founders, having helped extract the business from Goldman Sachs Asset Management by way of a management buyout back at the very start of 2017. He leads Yarra's Australian equities business and is portfolio manager of a number of its institutional strategies and managed funds. He started his career at the Boston Consulting Group before moving to the States for grad school and spending close to five years there working in roles with Fidelity and Citadel. He returned to Australia in 2007 to head up Goldman Sachs Asset Management's Australian equities franchise. We are meeting as the markets themselves appear to be in change mode. Inflation fears are resurfacing as a path out of COVID becomes more tangible. Dion, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mel. Wonderful to be here. Dion, Yarra itself is undergoing some pretty big changes right now, having announced earlier this month a binding agreement to acquire Nico Asset Management's Australian Funds Management Operation. Before we get into that, though, I think it's worth starting with a helicopter view of the funds management industry here in Australia. I've always felt that there are several big trends in the last decade or two impacting on your industry. The first is the rise of passive management, and that's observable in the huge growth in ETFs, exchange-traded funds. The second is the increasing trend of industry funds here to in-house investment capability. Another is industry fund consolidation. And the last, maybe a function of the first three, is declining fees. How have you seen those factors in terms of their impact on reshaping the funds management industry here? Thanks, Mel. Look, it's a fascinating time. And I guess my opening comment would be the industry is unrecognisable from what it was a decade ago. You know, the things that we, we analyse our industry like we'd analyse any other stock. Um, you know, the things that are obvious, and this is the huge tailwind behind the industry, is the growth in the superannuation system through the guarantee and through growth in income and growth in wages. That, that's been one hell of a tailwind for our industry. As you said, there are also a lot of other things that are either headwinds or cross-currents. And I can't disagree with any of you said. Uh, Passive's been underrepresented in Australia and it's growing. Industry funds are insourcing. Industry funds are merging. And all this speaks to, frankly, a a backdrop that is more complicated. And to be more complicated, you need to be, I think, more nuanced in terms of how you actually approach it. It's not sufficient just to have an asset management business. You need a pretty clear strategy for where you're going and how you're going to navigate those cross-currents that I described before. So the way we think about it is success in the future is obviously having strong research capabilities. It's about having scale. It's about having diversification. It's about having multiple ways to grow. And in addition to the industry funds that you described, which are important clients to us, we want to make sure we can grow strongly in the Australian retail market, which I think is going to become more of a direct market over time, and make sure we can grow through sourcing our international clients into Australian capabilities, which is really the genesis of the, of the partnership we've announced with Nico. Just quickly, why do you say that the retail market, you think, is going to become more of a direct market over time? Yeah, I think it just stands to reason that as the technology becomes better, as the user interface is simpler, and as the information becomes more immediate, a lot of retail investors will become more self-directed. And you've seen that in the US, you've seen that in a number of other Asian markets. So I still think advice is important for some clients, but in some respects, advice will also be offered probably through some robo-form to the masses in a form that's, that's economic to distribute. So I think if you look at the world 
in some respects, it's consolidating in terms of industry funds, but in other respects, it's actually fragmenting in terms of the retail market, which for some time was dominated by the big four banks who all in one way, shape or form have exited the industry. And now there are far more stakeholders in retail. And I think retail direct is also going to be an important channel. And you said that scale is also important. Yeah. We are now at the point where there are trillion dollar fund managers. Yes. So what is scale? Yeah, look, scale is specific to what you actually do. And the business that Yarra is focused on is active investing in Australian fixed income and Australian equities. And we believe, you know, it's north of $20 billion post the NICO acquisition, we will be a scale player in what we do. And by that, I mean, we've got- And that's jumping from eight to 20, I think, isn't it, Dion? That's correct. By that, I mean, we've got the capacity to have a world-class research team. Post the transaction, we'll have 35 people in Australian fixed income and Australian equities research across all our capabilities access to the best systems, uh, the highest operating standards, a very strong legal and compliance framework, which frankly requires scale, requires reinvestment, and will be much better place to do that post the transaction than, than frankly most of our peers. Often when uh, two groups merge, sometimes they're too similar to each other and that creates synergies yeah. and it, it, you, there are multiple mums on seats and you can yeah. move, move some out, but it also creates friction Sometimes they're too different and that can create issues. So can you tell us a little bit about NICO Asset Management? What's the history of uh, NICO in Australia? Sure. So the abbreviated history of NICO Asset Management in Australia was as a business was purchased by NICO from Suncorp about a decade ago. Uh, NICO's been a very successful uh, global fund manager, obviously a large presence in Asia, and the business they bought in Australia was their foothold. And that business really has got two major capabilities, and that I'd refer to as Australian fixed income, which is really a macro sovereign uh, investment approach that also does some credit, and a value equities business, which is, as I said, uh, separate and distinct from the way that Yarra chooses to invest. So what we're trying to do with this partnership is keep businesses separate so that they can remain their own franchises with their own identity, their own teams, their own processes, their own capabilities. And by that, I'm referring to the what will soon be called the Tyndall uh, Equities Team. Tyndall was the name prior to the acquisition of the business by Suncorp. So effectively going to Tyndall Asset Management, which will be a specialist value manager for Australian equities. Yarra's equities business will remain, as I said, separate and distinct. We're more of a style neutral, quality focused manager. And the huge opportunity is actually bringing together our two fixed income businesses, which we think are hugely complementary. Yarra's strengths have traditionally been in credit. Nico's strengths have traditionally been in macro. And when you bring those two businesses together, we actually become a full service. When you, when you say macro, manager. you mean sovereign? Sovereign, exactly. Yeah. So sovereign, semi-sovereign, um, high quality. So they come together and you broaden the areas in fixed interest you, that you're investing in without anything really clashing. Absolutely. So what was so unique about these businesses is they were literally different sides of the same coin. And post the transaction, we become a full service fixed income manager with two specialist equity capabilities um, that, as I said, remain separate, distinct, different teams, philosophies and processes. And then the backdrop, which gets to the earlier part of the conversation, will have the benefit of having scale in the middle, the back office and the technology platforms that support the business. Dan, as I understand it, there'll be a period now while you actually uh, weld these two businesses together. But uh, when you get there, what are the opportunities for growth? Yeah. Nico is going to become a shareholder. So is Japan now a key growth market for the enlarged business? And what about uh, the retail market? 
Sure. Uh, uh, the answer is yes. What I can say with conviction is for the last four years since Yarra was set up, Japan's already been a really important market for us. We probably had faster growth uh, out of Japan than we actually have had in the Australian market. And in some respects, that provided the confidence to, to realise we should be doing more in Japan. And Japan's you know, the third or fourth largest pension market globally. Uh, it's got extraordinary amounts of liquidity in it. What it doesn't have is strong returns in light of the interest rate regime that they've been governed under for the better part of 20 years. So we were always excited about Japan, but success in Japan on a large scale requires strong distribution partners. And that was really the genesis of this partnership that we've described, where we could team up with Nikko, who's a powerhouse in the local market, frankly, who wanted a broader suite of products to take into Japan. We felt that put us in a privileged position. So the idea is we can build on the strong start we've had in Japan with a major distributor. And what you want in, in distribution partners is really strong alignment. And we felt the strongest way to have alignment would be for Nikko to be a co-owner of our business at Yarra and they'll own 20% of the company in the future and also have board representation. So as we think about how we grow in the future, the institutional market remains really important to us. Japan is something we're going to actively pursue with a super strong partner. And retail is also important. And I think by bringing together the scale we'll have in the retail market, the Nikko teams and the Yarra teams, we're far better placed to service what is a fragmenting, complicated market that is actually looking for products like we have and we feel we can represent into. What about the rest of Asia? Is Nikko active uh, right through this region? Yeah, Nikko has got a very strong presence across Asia. So, you know, there's strong products in Asian equities, Japanese equities. They've got a major affiliate called ARC that does technology investing. And one of the exciting aspects of this partnership is we'll be able to represent those products into the Australian market. A number of them have already been represented into Australia and there's been a lot of clients have actually got on board with those capabilities. But the combined business we feel will be in a much better position to represent those products. In 2018, you struck up an alliance with uh, UBS. What happens to that? Does that continue? Absolutely continues. I mean, UBS are another important distribution partner for us. They sub-advise their Australian equities capabilities to Yarra and we work with them side by side, doing everything from large cap products all the way through to micro cap products. So that we believe that's also going to be an important partnership in the future. They're going to continue to do that? Absolutely. Yarra is known for being a research heavy outfit, mm-hmm. already was. And as you say, you're adding more now. So does it change? Or is it that it doesn't change inside the part of the equities business it is and continues to be Yarra and doesn't change inside the value equities business that renames as Tyndall? Naturally, we think it strengthens. And I think across the business, we'll probably have one of the largest research footprints in the country, which brings extraordinary advantage from our perspective. In a world that's becoming, in some respects, more commoditized, having 35 fundamental investors on fixed income and equity markets, we think is a distinct advantage. Some of them will be operating in separate teams, but there'll be shared knowledge, shared technology. I was thinking that. I think it's going to be important because they're completely different management styles to have some kind of membrane between the two. Yeah. So I think what you could say is there'll be things that are of thematic nature or macroeconomic nature that should benefit all teams. But when it comes to doing stock-specific research, naturally the two businesses with different processes, teams and philosophies will be separate and distinct. Dion, when you and uh, the people that came with you took this business out of Goldman Sachs, you would have had a very clear idea about what you wanted this business to be, what the management style would be, where it would go and where it wouldn't go. Now you're more than doubling the size of it with this Nico acquisition. So does the strategic vision and direction of the group change fundamentally with this 
is it a, a repositioning of the strategy or is it a strengthening of the existing strategy which doesn't change? Yeah, Mel, I'd probably describe it as execution of the existing strategy. I mean, what we're talking about here is consistent with a vision of wanting to be a strong, independent, research-led investment franchise. And strong, independent, sustainable means you've got to have multiple products, multiple channels, and a diverse and compelling business. And we think this is an important milestone on that journey. Let's have a look at uh, the reporting season, which is something that investors have just waded through. I think the overall consensus was that it was pretty good, but obviously... One of the important things for uh, people that are invested in uh, the companies that are reporting is that it doesn't just have to be good, it has to be better than expected. That's the real game in town these days. So how did we do in this February season? Yeah, when you look at it both qualitatively and quantitatively, you'd have to say it was an extraordinarily strong reporting season. Now, the earnings still were down year over year, but if you look at the amount of dislocation and damage in the economy, it was extraordinary to think that corporate earnings only fell by 10% in light of what companies endured or the economy endured during that time period. When you actually look at the results versus expectations, which is the heart of your question now, it was also a very strong period. The number of companies that beat expectations versus missed was a ratio of 3.2 to 1, which is the strongest ratio we've seen in the better part of a decade. We saw dividends being reinstated much faster than most people would have anticipated. They're obviously not back to par, but uh, like the banks, for example, they're paying dividends again in the main, but they're not back where they were. Yeah, the way that we think about it is by fiscal 22, which is the you know, financial year we're about to approach, we expect dividends to be back at fiscal 19 levels. So the way I'd describe that, it was it was a steep but relatively short valley that, that the market went through. And that V-shaped recovery, which many people were sceptical about, but to the credit of Tim Tui and our economics team had conviction around, played out in both the economy, but it's also played out in corporate earnings. So when you think about corporate Australia, it, it largely came through this, albeit with a ton of support from the government, in strong shape with actually extraordinarily strong balance sheets, dividends coming back quickly, and interestingly, very little share issuance. There was an expectation that capital raisings would be abundant mm. given the distress. And from what we can gather, probably less than 15% of the ASX 200 actually were forced to raise equity. And that's a fraction of what we saw during the GSC, but that stands to reason because companies entered this period after almost a decade of conservatism with good balance sheets and low rates, as opposed to the GFC, where there was frankly a decade of bad behaviour uh, heading into the crisis. Dion, you said that fewer companies raised equity at the height of the uh, uh, drama about yeah. coronavirus expansion last year than expected. But can we also say that some of the companies that did raise, probably with the benefit of hindsight, should not have raised? and um, gave away some equity pretty cheap. I completely agree with your comment there. We, we look back, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but this turned out to be quite a short, sharp downturn. What was pretty clear to us is there were a number of companies that panicked, raised equity unnecessarily, diluted shareholders, which long-term is extremely damaging. The companies that navigated this cycle well were typically the ones that had good access to credit markets, had extended tenure and had flexibility in their facilities. So we saw a lot of companies that seemingly could have been distressed, but because they had strong capital markets access, were able to sail through without the dilution. And frankly, in contrast, we saw some companies that raised equity. A lot of it actually has proven to be unnecessary. And these businesses will now have surplus capital, some of which might be returned uh, via buybacks, ironically, or via higher dividends. JobKeeper is about to finish. Is that an asterisk on the February reporting season? Uh, I, and that it might not be representational? 
Yeah, I think most companies are very transparent as to what level of benefit they actually got from JobKeeper. We can't find any businesses that were a net beneficiary from JobKeeper. What we found is JobKeeper helped to buffer some of the blow Mm. from airports being shut, hotels being shut, the CBD being vacant. So our sense is that as activity comes back, that'll be far more influential than the absence of JobKeeper. And JobKeeper going away is not going to surprise anybody. It's been quantified. It's been well telegraphed. And the employment numbers heading into the end of March Much have been better stunning. Than expected. Yeah, it's yeah. Pretty, pretty telling to think that there's more people employed in Australia today than there was pre-COVID. Now, the unemployment rate's higher because the participation rate is higher, but it speaks to actually a quite a healthy economy. Which were the sectors that did best in Feb? Yeah, so a lot of it really coincides with this rotation that happened in the market post-November 9th. The November 9th is an important date because it was effectively when Pfizer's vaccine got broad-based medical support. And, you know, that was probably a turning point for society. It was also a turning point for the economy and certainly a turning point for financial markets. So in some respects, the trends that took place from November through to February carried on. Post-election too, post-US post, election. Of course, yeah, those two things pretty much coincided. But if I was to sort of share with you some return metrics since November, what's noteworthy is the more cyclical sectors have outperformed defensive sectors by mile. So, you know, that's, by the way, a huge reversal. For the 10 years prior to November, defensive companies in Australia outperformed cyclical companies by circa 240%. And that's probably been the dominant theme in Australian financial markets for a decade. And the backdrop there is interest rates went from circa 7% to close to nothing. Defensive, high-growth businesses were well-rewarded. And frankly, you could have thrown darts and made money in the healthcare or the tech sector. Now we're in a market where people realise interest rates can go up as well as down. It's far more nuanced. Valuations are starting to matter. And we think there's a renaissance in a lot of these cyclical businesses. So to answer the start of your question, the two best performing sectors since November have actually been the cyclical ones like energy, which is up circa 25%, and banks, which are up circa 35% since that all-important turning point. You mentioned that cyclical stocks are back. Is value investing more generally coming back as part of this pivot that's going on? Value investors generally have had an absolutely terrible decade or so from basically the end of the GFC forward, uh, and they've been caned by growth stocks, momentum investing has been where it's at Mm. to a large extent, is value investing back? And of course, value investing produced a premium over the market average for, you know, nearly a century before that. Sure. But what I would say though, and obviously we're really pleased to have the Tyndall business because they are classic value investors, is the underperformance of value did coincide with that dramatic fall in interest rates. Mm. And at that point, valuation didn't matter. And as we talked about, the top quartile of the Australian market got to trade at 50-odd times forward earnings. And that is, again, without precedent. Probably Just 60, unheard of. Yeah. Unheard of, right? It's literally, you can't find a chart that would support that level. Uh, so is value back? That's all to be proven. What we would say, though, is a lot of cyclical businesses, and I talked before about this view that there's a renaissance in cyclical businesses as the economy recovers, a lot of the cyclical businesses do happen to be value companies. So we've probably got more conviction. The economy's turning, as do cyclical businesses. That's a tailwind for value. But having said that, there are some cyclical businesses that are also high quality and high growth. So they can fit at different parts of the spectrum. I always get a little bit frustrated at these points where the market is turning and people are starting to look at economies readying themselves to grow again and then starting to think, well, in that case, interest rates are going to be rising. Central banks around the world will be using rates to try and 
produce more sustainable longer-term growth by making it a more measured expansion and so on and so forth. And so, of course, the markets tank. The bond markets sell off and share markets sell off. But we're talking about the economy coming out of a really hard time and going into a really good time. Sure. So sort of intuitively, you kind of feel in your heart that this should be something the market should be celebrating, but instead they're selling down, sometimes even panicking about the prospect of rates going higher. How do you feel when you go into this time of the cycle and how do you think the markets are handling it so far? Where, what are we in now? We're almost six months in since US bond yields started to go up. I think it was August they started to go. Yeah, I'll make a couple of observations. The first of which is, as you said, the important thing to look at is actually long-term interest rates rather than short-term interest rates because the central banks globally have pegged to short-term rates for the next two to three years. So in my opinion, there's probably not much to see there for the next couple of years. But if you look at the Australian 10-year bond as a proxy, it's actually gone from circa 70 basis points a year ago to 170 basis points. It's yeah. been quite a start. Quite a move. jump. And the way that we think about it, there's probably going to be two major effects, one of which is pretty clear-cut, the other of which is path-dependent. Rising interest rates tends to be coincident with a rotation in financial markets where you'll see property stocks, infrastructure stocks, tech stocks, healthcare stocks underperform. So I think you can probably have high conviction that if rates go up, people will rotate away from the safer parts of the market that are expensive. So that's probably where we're more squarely focused. Whether or not rising rates is good or bad for the equity market in general, depends entirely on why they're rising. And I agree with your point now, if they're rising because the economy is robust and employment is robust, in some respects, that's good for the economy and it should be good for financial markets. If they're rising because there's meaningful inflation in the absence of strong growth, well, clearly that's terrible for financial markets. Well, we're in the former situation right now, aren't we? But uh, sometimes investors seem to collectively uh, differentiate between those two states of affairs. That's right. Uh, how are they going so far? Have we been growing up about this shift so far, do you think? I think so far it's been measured. I think the, the rotation's been far more pronounced than, than headwinds the equity markets. I mean, equity markets, since rates have gone up, have actually gone up as well mm. in that 12-month time period. That's noteworthy, and that's consistent with the view that the economy is actually recovering. So I think it's been relatively orderly. The real test will be if bonds keep backing up. And if I talk to our fixed income colleagues, that's absolutely the expectation. If you look at the amount of stimulus in the economy, the amount of stimulus is, which is still yet to come, which is staggering in itself, you know, there's a good chance that GDP is growing north of 5% in the next 12 months. And GDP growth above 5% is coincident with interest rates a hell of a lot higher than 1.7% on a 10-year bond. Well, that's part of the uh, concern that's in the market, isn't it? The inflation concern is partly tied up yeah. in a concern that perhaps the latest package of stimulus in the States is coming too late and is too big. I think that's a sensible proposition. We're more focused on the Australian markets, yeah. but it's a mighty package coming quite late in what is a, a recovery that's quite well established. And I think what we've learned in Australia is, you know, a lot of the economic recovery comes from giving people mobility back with or without a vaccine. Mm. You either vaccinate people or you close your borders. Obviously, we've gone for the latter. And that's why in Australia, at least, consumer confidence is back at high levels, business confidence is rebounding, credit growth is fantastic, asset prices are going up. So that is, that is a healthy backdrop. And you know, in the US, to me at least, it appears they're putting a fair bit of fuel on the fire. Just looking at Yara's own funds management style, does that make you less sensitive to shifts like this in the sense that you always tend to be fully invested? 
So we think we've got a very broad canvas, right, where, you know, we've got as a style neutral investor that focuses on quality companies, we can lean in all directions based upon the opportunity set. And we've got obviously got to get the direction right. But we feel like this is actually a good environment where valuation matters, there's more dispersion in stocks, momentum is not necessarily dominating the way it has in the past. So we think, and my comments are probably a little bit self-serving, we're heading back into a classic stock pickers market, which is what we look forward to. Now, you mentioned uh, momentum and maybe it's less dominant than it was. There have been some really, really strange momentum investing effects and other effects. And uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about them if I can. GameStop, for example, is a US-listed mall retailer of old-style video games, the physical games you uh, whack into a player. Uh, Reddit Internet Discussion Group pushed it from single figures to more than $300. There's uh, the incredible increase in the share price of Tesla. There is the expansion of crypto into the art market. There's the emergence of what looks like a new powerful investor class through online retail broking apps, including Robin Hood in the States, and there are versions of that out here. There's the emergence of SPAC, special purpose acquisition companies. So there's been a lot of what you would have said even a year ago is pretty strange stuff going on. Is this end of market boom days stuff or are we actually seeing structural changes occurring as well? Yeah, the the way that I think about it is it's almost like every month a different chapter in a bubble book is being written and you can go through the chronology of these weird and wonderful events and I'll avoid referring to them as unprecedented because frankly we've seen this sort of speculation before. Mm. Now the vehicles people are speculating in change the people who are speculating is probably a different cohort at this point in time. But we've absolutely seen this behaviour before and look, most times it ends in tears. And what's a bit different about this series of chapters in the book is it's largely retail investors. A lot of them are actually using leverage and there's probably not a strong understanding of what they're actually doing. So my sense is a lot of this behaviour doesn't end well. And in this instance, you know, it's been prolific in the US and there's certainly plenty of evidence it's happening in Australia as well. Have you got any thoughts on the fact that uh, the spike in uh, crypto asset prices, uh, including Bitcoin this year, has been significantly on the back of the decision of some fund managers to say, yeah, we're going to treat it as an asset class? Not very much, maybe a half a percent, but we will allocate a certain amount to Bitcoin. Elon Musk has said that you can now buy a Tesla in the States with Bitcoin and that Tesla itself in uh, its treasury has invested in Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin and crypto now an asset class? Is that actually happening or is that another example of this sort of speculative hype? Look, I think it's speculative hype and a lot of people will probably think I'm a dinosaur who doesn't understand it. But look, for me, it gets back to intrinsic value and I struggle to recognise where the intrinsic value is in a number of these instruments. I often refer to as as Chuck Prince syndrome. Chuck Prince was the the famous Citigroup CEO who who coined the phrase, while the music's playing, you just got to get up and dance. And I think there's a lot of that going on at the moment. And in this instance, there's a lot of retail investors making highly, highly speculative decisions. Look, we know that when we invest on behalf of our clients, we have a fiduciary responsibility to research the companies, understand their underlying value and form a view on risk. And I simply can't do that on crypto assets. We spoke about uh, the February results. Let's have a look forward. How do you see the outlook for corporate earnings here, dividend yields and capital markets activity more generally? 
Yeah, so what we'd say is that the corporate earnings are largely lagging but mirroring what's happening in the economy. So it has been a really sharp V in the Australian economy, albeit with north of $200 billion of stimulus put into the system. But that is now cascading through the real economy and the multipliers that every economist hopes to see are there. Uh, case in point is what's happened with JobKeeper or what's happened with Home Builder. They're creating real economic activity that's feeding through to corporate earnings. So we think we've got a solid backdrop for corporate earnings for the next six to 12 months. It's not all one-way traffic. But if you look at the composition of the Australian market, it's actually reasonably narrow. You've got big banks at 20% of the market with bad debts going down, credit growth going up and costs now finally being contained. It's actually a robust backdrop for bank earnings. Second biggest part of the market is obviously mining companies. And with iron ore prices, we don't expect them to remain north of 160 for too long. But if they remain in this sort of healthy territory, the, uh, the mining sector will have strong profits and dividends. And of course, there's been an unbelievable turnaround in oil, and that's probably an important sector for corporate earnings as well. When the oil price has literally gone from negative to 60 bucks a barrel, and that leads to robust earnings. So our view is, and the, the consumer started to come alive as well, given confidence coming back. The headwinds are also quite obvious. Now, the headwinds are this inflation coming back into the system. Uh, some of the stimulus payments will, will start to ease and that you know, we still are not fully open for trade as a country. You know, when you recognise two or three of Australia's largest exports outside the resources sector are education and tourism, they're big parts of the market that are simply still shut. You mentioned debt and you thought that debt levels in the profit reporting season were pretty good, not, not anything to generate any sort of major concern about. Obviously, global debt is way up yes. since uh, coronavirus uh, expanded through the world. I wrote, in the middle of 2019 that total global debt was about 300% of global gross domestic product. And Bloomberg reported in February that since COVID-19 emerged, $24 trillion has been uh, borrowed by governments, companies and households. So global debt is now about 355% of global GDP, which sounds like a lot, but of course the coupon on the debt is still historically very low. So debt service continues to be not such a big deal as long as it stays where it is. So is that something to be reassured by or something to be concerned about? Or or am I asking you, are you a bull or a bear? No, I think it's just something to be aware of, you know, where the debt sits, the quantum of it. I agree with your point. I don't think there's a huge issue around serviceability given where interest rates are, but also speaks to the fact that interest rates probably can't skyrocket either. I mean, the debt levels that we're speaking of, I think, represent a tax or a speed bump on future growth. But for a lot of the the strong sovereigns, those levels are absolutely sustainable. We often think there's not enough of a discussion about good debt versus bad debt. And, you know, if governments are borrowing for infrastructure, for future investment, a strong case can be made for that. If they're borrowing to meet short-term deficits, which are cyclical or structural, that's a little bit more problematic. But look, in Australia, I still think we're in a privileged position. You know, low debt levels by comparative purposes, AAA rating, and a currency that's actually supportive. And look, corporate Australia, there's always going to be outliers, by the way, but they've been few and far between this cycle, is in good shape. And that's that's a decade of conservatism going into it. It's actually been the fact that the absence of dividends for some companies helped people rebuild their capital positions, and the fact that it was that sharp V that I described before. What about Australian corporate debt more specifically, Dion? How concerned are you about the potential for corporate distress here if rates were to move up quickly? 
Yeah, look, you can never be relaxed about corporate indebtedness, but what we'd say is the economy is in, in reasonably good shape. Corporate Australia is largely delevered, and you'll find problems in the outliers or the reckless businesses. But it's worth noting we've been through a pretty big shakeout over the last 12 to 18 months. Insolvency levels are actually down. The number of emergency capital raisings for corporate Australia is down. And interestingly, bad debts for the big four banks have already mean reverted down to long-term average levels. And the arrears, and I guess that's a forerunner for future problems, are also back to normal levels. So you, you can never be complacent, but I think the starting point was actually quite strong. Are you confident uh, re- residential debt is secure, even though Yarra owns the banks, which is basically why I'm asking this? Yeah. Is uh, residential debt uh, still looking okay, even though we've got a house price boom that's to an extent on the back of these very low rates, very low borrowing rates? Yeah, I think what we'd say is across our business, we own obviously banks, we own residential mortgage-backed securities, we own asset-backed securities, and we would say they continue to be very attractive asset classes. And although property prices have run hard on the back of low interest rates, what we'd point to is demand for property we think remains strong for the foreseeable future. But also point to the fact that when we own mortgages, we actually own them with quite a significant margin of safety. You know, high LVR mortgages have mortgage insurance. We don't typically have the first loss piece. So it takes typically before mortgages go south, it takes property price drops greater than 20%, which is possible, but certainly not our central case. And we also need typically a huge spike in unemployment and or interest rates where people can't service the mortgages. So the reason that long-term average mortgage bad debts in Australia have been three basis points is not because property's always gone up the whole time over 30 years. It's basically because the security and the way these products are structured gives you a pretty good margin of safety. Yarra's had a pretty busy four years from what I can see since it was spun out of Goldman. You've built a really solid, incredible credit business. You've added capability through the partnership deal with UBS that you struck in 2018. You've launched new products. You've raised significant assets, particularly in Japan, doing that. You've brought in people, including the absolutely top-rate economist, Tim Tui, to add to the top-down capabilities inside the business. Now you're bolting on the Nikko Australia Funds Management Operation to more than double the size of the funds under management. Dion, what's next? Sure, I think there's a couple of answers to that question. I think for the investment teams, we want to plough ahead and be focused on what we have been doing, albeit with a bigger research team and some more resources. So I think in some respects, that's more of the same uh, done with a greater focus, if that's possible. For all the other parts of the business, there's quite a, a significant task ahead in terms of integrating the back offices, the middle offices, the distribution teams. Uh, and that's important work that we think will progress over the next six to 12 months that frankly happens independent of what the investment teams are focused on. And Dion, your role is changing as part of this, isn't it? Yes, it is, Mel, and it's something, frankly, that I'm excited about. With the acquisition, I guess the size and the complexity of the business grows, and I'm going to be stepping away from being the managing director who runs the business day-to-day and be focused squarely on being, frankly, the head of equities and running the large-cap strategies. So my role changes. First and foremost, I'll be an investor, but I'll also move to be executive chairman of the group to have a degree of oversight on sort of strategy, leadership and culture. Dion, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. Thanks so much for coming down and talking to us at uh, a very busy time for you and for Yarra. Thanks, Mel. Great to be here. The Yarra Exchange was brought to you by Yarra Capital Management and hosted by me, Mal Maiden. If you liked what you heard, and we hope that you did, we'd love you to hit the subscribe button and share it with your colleagues, friends and family. And finally, the disclaimer. The Yarra Exchange podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, 
you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. Any actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.